Hi, folks. This is Abel James, and thanks so much for listening to the Fat Burning Man Show. Today's show is with James Clear, a former All-American baseball player, a man who certainly knows his way around the weight room, and an expert in behavioral change. Now, before we get to the show, I just wanted to talk quickly about the reason that I don't have commercials on my show. After hitting number one in health and a million downloads in less than a year, (laughs) I've been approached by a lot of different folks who want me to advertise. But I don't advertise on this show for a few reasons. Number one, ads are kind of annoying. I don't like them, and I'm sure you probably don't like them a whole lot either. And number two, this one's much more important. Whenever you choose to have an advertiser involved in what you're doing and your show, they also have a bit of a stake in what you have to say. So for example, a lot of the folks who approach me who want to advertise on the show are related to nutrition or food or fitness, fat-burning supplements or protein bars with a bunch of fake stuff in them. I'll never recommend a product or a service or even a person and their book or website or what have you on my show unless I absolutely believe that it could help you. If I wanted to sell out, I would have stayed in strategy consulting. (laughs) But also, and this is kind of unfortunate, a lot of people when they take on advertisers, the advertisers have a little bit of say in, in what is said and not said by the person who's creating the content or doing the interviews in this case. So what I mean by that is my personal truth is that I don't think you should be eating at Wendy's or eating Campbell's chicken noodle soup or drinking Gatorade or eating any fake foods for that matter. Unfortunately, a lot of the people who want to advertise aren't the ones selling the highest quality stuff. So there may come a day when there's the perfect marriage between someone who wants to come on the show and talk about their product or service, and it's very high value to you guys and I stand behind it, but that day has certainly not come yet, so I am happily advertiser-free. But what that means is that this actually costs me money and a heck of a lot of time to bring you this show. So if you'd like to contribute and keep this show advertising free, I've set up a few buttons on the show notes as well as the right sidebar at fatburningman.com. And you can donate as little as $1 and I'll send you a couple of free eBooks if you do so. I really appreciate your support and I plan to bring you the highest quality show I possibly can for many months and hopefully many years to come. So once again, hop on over to fatburningman.com and you can donate as little as $1. Really appreciate your support. All right, so today's show is with James Clear, a man of many talents, and we talk about intermittent fasting, carb cycling, nutrient cycling, macronutrient cycling, environmental design, behavior change, and all sorts of other things. It's a content-packed show, so saddle up, folks, and get ready. All right, let's go hang out with James. Folks, today we're here with James Clear, a man of many talents, including a former All-American baseball player, a weightlifter, a travel photographer, and an expert in behavior change. What's cooking, James? Hey, well, happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I know that there are tons of things that the the fans are going to be interested in you talking about, including intermittent fasting, weightlifting, effective fat loss strategies, and all sorts of other things. But let's start with your story. How did you get into all of this? Sure. So I've always been an athlete. Uh, I played baseball for 17 years uh, all the way through college. My dad actually played baseball in the minor leagues with the St. Louis Cardinals for a little while. So I was sort of born and bred to be a baseball player, I guess. But, you know, I played basketball and swam and tried football for a year. You know, in football, there's like guys who get hit and guys who are giving hits. I was getting hit. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah. So I decided uh, I decided baseball and basketball would be better for me. But Anyway, so I did that for a long time. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was awesome. I not only just enjoyed like the competitive aspect of playing, but also 
I loved all the leadership aspects, like being a teammate, being a captain, like having the guys back who's, you know, next to you and what it means to sacrifice it for something that's bigger than yourself, all yeah. that stuff. Like I could, I could talk about that stuff all day long. That was, that was really the piece of sports that, um, appealed to me the most. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I loved all that stuff and I also happened to enjoy school and learning and everything. And so I was a science major. I was a biomechanics major in undergrad. And I was trying to decide between going to a med school program or a PhD program. And I couldn't pick which one I wanted to do or, you know, what would be the best thing to to start with. And actually, to be honest, the main thing I focused on in undergrad was playing baseball. Um, I mean, I I got good grades and everything, but that was like the number one thing I cared about. So as a result, I didn't think too much about what I wanted to do next. Mm -hmm. So... I decided to go to an MBA program and get uh, my business school, go to business school and get my MBA because I figured whatever I did, that would be useful. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I worked at an orthopedic medical practice, got to see all that. So I've been interested in like science and health for a long time and um, have been exposed to a variety of different areas on it. Mm -hmm. And so between working at the medical practice and then at the same time, I passed my CSCS, the Certified Strength Conditioning Specialist uh, designation. And was doing training for anywhere from like eight-year-olds all the way up to professional volleyball players. So wow. a pretty range of athletes. Um, and yeah, and so all those different touch points with health and medicine, with fitness, with athletics, and you know, with muscle gain and fat loss, and you know, all the variety of goals that people have when it comes to getting in shape. I feel like I've had a decent, uh, broad range of experiences with that, and mm-hmm. it's always been something that's been part of my life and something that I've been interested in. Yeah. And, um, it's clear from your, your blog, sorry, that was a terrible pun. I did not do that on purpose, but (laughs) you get into so many really interesting things that are not quite what the mainstream thinks about. Like I, I, uh, read about you doing one exercise, literally one exercise per session, like pushups or deadlifts or something like that. Well, Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Sure. So I think I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things there. So the first is that you mentioned, like, I try to take a different approach sometimes. And I think one thing is that I'm very focused on, like, implementation and uh, taking action. I think that phrase gets dished out a lot. But yeah. I, I, like, I like the science. I enjoy the science. I enjoy the, you know, understanding the concepts and the theories and all that stuff. But I'm very much of the mind that if you can't put information into action, then it's, you know, pretty much useless. Mm-hmm. And so... I consider I try to be a practitioner in as many ways as possible. And one way that I've tried to think about, okay, how can I practice things and actually get to the result that I'm trying to get to? I've noticed that I know first I noticed in my work, I run my own businesses, which I don't think I mentioned. I, I run two businesses online. But I so I started to notice in my work, like, oh, if I only pick one goal for the day and then achieve that, I always have a successful day and I tend to get more done. Yeah. And so I was like, what if I applied that to working out, right? What if I had like one goal for the workout, like something very specific? I want to increase my back squat today. Like that's the number one thing I'm going to focus on. And Mm -hmm. so instead of, I don't know how much you talk about programming workouts and stuff, but if you talk to a lot of trainers or strength conditioning coaches, they'll give you this general format for programming workouts that's oftentimes based on energy systems. Mm -hmm. So like the most explosive work should be done in the beginning. And then as you get to a longer and longer duration, those exercises should be done at the end. So like you would do, for example, a 400 meter sprint first, then uh, five sets of five for squat. And then you would do like, you know, three sets of 10 to 15 for lunges or something. Mm-hmm. If it was like a leg day, for example. So you're like increasing the endurance um, as you go through the workout. 
But I was like, well, what if I just flip that on its head and gave my best like mental effort and physical effort to whatever I thought was most important for that day? Yeah. So I started doing that and I actually saw much better results. I, I haven't written the article on this yet, but um, it, at one point, so I lived in Scotland for a little while. And when I moved back to the States, I'd been over there for four or five months. And so I was a little bit out of shape. I hadn't been lifting that much. I mean, I was just doing some bodyweight stuff. Yeah. And so my back squat was way down it was somewhere around like, I don't know. I think the first day I got back, I did like two sets of five with 180 pounds or something. Yeah. And I went from that to back squatting 350 in four months. Really? Yeah. And I did that just by dedicating, basically, basically I did it by saying the squat is the number one thing I want to focus on right now. And so I'm going to do that first every workout. And by doing that, I always had this clear goal of what I was working towards and what was most important to me. And then I just did, if I felt like doing extra stuff, you know, pull-ups, kettlebell swings, clean jerk, whatever, I would throw like an exercise on at the end. But there were some days where I would come in and just squat. And as a result of having that focus on one clear goal, I made a lot of progress in a short amount of time. I love that. That is that is super cool because it's so much about action. Like you said, it doesn't matter how much you know, how many books you read. It's all about actually doing it yourself. And then... Um, quantifying that in some way, even if it's just thinking about the way that you're doing something or like having a goal to improve. You don't have to necessarily write down every metric ever, but focusing on actually putting it into action is something that not enough people do. Yeah, I think it's, I think there's two important things you mentioned there. The one is to measure things, right? Like writing something down, you know, Mm -hmm. measure something, no matter what you're working on, like measure something. Because if you do, then you're going to have an indicator of whether or not you're making progress or not. And it sounds so simple. It sounds so so basic, but so rarely do we measure things. Yeah. And uh, I've found that if I actually track things, and a lot of times for me, like I have spreadsheets. Uh, right now, for example, I'm working towards doing 100 push-ups in a row. Nice. And so I have this spreadsheet of all the different push-up workouts I've done. And, and entering the numbers at the end of my workout is actually sort of a reward for me because mm-hmm. I get to see the progress that I made. That's right? cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, I think that tracking and measuring things is, is a critical piece um, of that. And then the other piece is that it's so easy, you know, you mentioned like taking action is something that we don't do enough of. It's just so, fitness in particular seems to be this place where there's so much information overwhelm. You know, I mean, everybody has a diet that you should follow. Everybody has a workout program that you should follow. And if you just sit there, and I've been there, like I understand like you want to get the best information possible and make sure that you're doing the right thing. You don't want to go to the gym and waste your time or you don't want to start this new diet and change your lifestyle and waste your time. But the truth of the matter is if you spend all your day researching, then eventually you end up doing nothing. Like mm-hmm. planning is good until it becomes a form of procrastination. Yes. And when it becomes a form of procrastination, that's when it's like, okay, we have already have enough information. Like if you actually put the information you already had into action, you would make more progress than if you spent another year searching for the right solution. Yeah. What's funny is that it can even be the wrong information as long as you put it into action, you know, like. Um, if, if you go to do a bench press or something like that and you're worried about, well, I need to do it like quickly and explosively because I just read this article about that's the only way to make gains or it's just like, no, I need to take at least five seconds to put it up and then put it back down and just start with a lower weight and then go to a higher one to failure and just like you're thinking about all these things and then you're so overwhelmed that you're not really doing any of them correctly, right? You're not really implementing anything, but the yeah. thing that really matters is just going and, and moving weight in the first place. Yeah, that's so true. At at some point, you just have to get in there and do the exercise. And I like to break it down. I'm actually putting together this guide called Foundations of Strength, which Mm -hmm. is just going to be based on 
like these basic principles of what it means to get stronger, what you need to do to, to move properly. Like one of them is big movements lead to big improvements. Yeah. And like that's, if you just keep that in mind, like do something that's a big movement, you know, instead of doing a curl, run a sprint or, yeah. you know, do something, do a squat, do a clean, like some, something that requires a lot of movement. And if you do that, like that's the most simple way to think about it but you're going to see progress whether or not you have all the other details figured out. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I took a, uh, a Nautilus class when I was in college and, um, just wanted to focus on isolating muscle groups and kind of the science behind it. I came out of that class after like three months of training in a very specific way on those machines. And I, I know why, you know, it didn't work now, but I, I was less strong. Um, and, and pretty noticeably whenever I used functional weights, you know, whenever mm -hmm. I use free weights or anything like that. And I'm like, this is absolutely ridiculous. And so many people train uh, on all these isolated little groups and tiny little muscles that they think will improve their appearance or something like that. But one of the beautiful things about switching to like large compound movements is that there are only a few core exercises that you need to focus on to really get some some serious gains. Yes, absolutely. And so I'll, let me uh, tell a little, a short little story here yeah, that go for I think it. really clarifies. So I, I, tr I lifted on an Olympic lifting team in Columbus, Ohio, and it's actually a great team. Um, our best female lifter, Holly Mangold competed in the Olympics in London. And cool. then, um, our two of our best male lifters are top 10 in the weight class and stuff. And then there's like me, right. Who's yeah. not nearly at their level and is learning stuff all the time from them. But our coach said the said this this little idea and I was like wow this makes so much sense we were looking across the gym at someone doing you know like the lateral raises while sitting on the Swiss ball or whatever mm -hmm. and I, I don't have any like a lot of people do those exercises just because they don't know right like they don't know that there's something better yeah but he was talking about how imagine how elite of an athlete you need to be for an exercise like that to make a measurable difference yeah. like you have to already be in such great shape that training the really tiny muscle in your deltoid is going to be like an improvement for you. Right. Right. So like, and why would that make sense for anybody who's not an elite athlete? It wouldn't to train like at that micro level. Yeah. Like you try to take care of the big stuff first, you know, like if you can do a squat or if you can't, you know, if you can't walk a mile, well, this is something that like you should work on these major movements and then do the little stuff. It, you know, it just makes sense to get more granular and more mm -hmm. detailed as you become more elite or as you become more specialized, not yeah. beforehand. Right. Why start with that stuff? And it's so overwhelming if you start with that stuff. And I was, uh, you know, just had Tim Ferriss on the show and we were talking about whenever you learn a new skill or say you haven't been to the gym in a while or you're trying a new uh, a new way of exercising. You need to make the beginning of the process as simple, as enjoyable as possible, just because it's natural to feel, uh, aversion to starting something new. You know, it's hard or it's difficult. It's, it's really, and I know you get into this a lot. It's difficult to build new habits. So you need to do everything you can to kind of simplify and make the beginning of the process. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, small wins are really what you're hinting at there, right? Yeah. Like you need, you need that dose of momentum to propel you forward. Right. And sometimes it's the smallest win that, that keeps you going and ends up putting you like on that path to greatness. Totally. Um, but you, you have to reward yourself by going after achievable goals and achievable metrics and then feeling good about your progress. I mean, it should be a celebration. It's not, I think one thing that's so easy to do is set a big goal for yourself and end up in a place that's better than where you were initially, but still feel bad about it right. because you didn't reach the goal that you set out to reach. And yeah. it's so hard to, 
it's so easy to, to reach for big things and so easy to lose the perspective that you're actually better than you were before, even though you didn't reach this arbitrary goal that you set in the beginning. Yeah. And so, so how like do you navigate rewarding that? yourself for, for those small wins, I think is huge. It is huge. Yeah. But how else can you navigate that? Cause that applies not just to obviously nutrition and fitness, but everything. In life. Yeah. Absolutely. You never really arrive. Well, <laughs> one thing that, that I talk about a little bit is this concept called identity based habits. Mm-hmm. And, so the idea is a lot of times when we set a goal for ourselves, and this is especially true when we try to do something new. So for example, let's take weight loss. You know, it's like, I want to lose 10 pounds. Even, you know, I, right now I'm not working out. Right now I'm, you know, hanging out at home. I'm not working out consistently. But I know I want to lose 10 pounds or 15 pounds or 30 pounds or whatever it is. And so I set this goal, this like performance metric or this appearance-based metric, right? Like lose 30 pounds. That's something that's based on my appearance. Or bench press 50 more pounds. That's something that's based on my performance. Right. And instead, I think that we should base goals initially off of our identity. So, for example, the type of person who never misses a workout, that's the type of person who can then become strong. That's the type of person who can then add 50 pounds or bench press. Mm. But if you don't first have the habit built, then you're trying to achieve a performance that isn't aligned with the type of person that you believe you are. And I think that that's a huge portion of it, right? Like if you, I was talking to a woman the other day and I asked her, she, she wanted to develop a morning running habit. And so she broke down the habit and what she had to do. And she realized that the number one barrier for her was waking up in the morning. And I asked her, why aren't you focused on like, you know, making sure that you can run or making sure that you just like run each day. And she was like, oh, well I am a runner. Like I already run each day. So my point there is that she already identified with that. Like she was going to run no matter when it was because that's who she was. So after she already had that identity built, then she focused on, all right, how do I adjust the habit to, you know, to reach my specific performance goal or whatever or tailor it to my day. And so I think too many people try to lose the weight or get, you know, get stronger, whatever the goal is, make more money um, before they have the identity of someone who does that, right? Like become the type of person who never misses a workout. So all your, your only goal in the beginning is make sure you work out three times a week, every week and you don't miss. Yeah. Well, you do that. Once you've done that, then you can move on to, all right, I know I'm going to the gym anyway. Now let's see, how can I get stronger or how can I lose weight faster or whatever? Yeah. I, I love that. And so few people ever really acknowledge that that's important, but it's all about making a a promise to yourself and a promise kind of to your identity. I remember when I shifted from focusing on macronutrients, like that was the way that I was eating. I wasn't really as focused on how my food tasted, but I made a promise to myself a few years ago that I wanted to make every single meal as delicious as possible. And like that just has become who I am. I think like a lot of my listeners and the people who read my blog know that I uh, in the kitchen, make all sorts of weird stuff, you know, like right. last night we had rosemary, garlic, lamb, and Japanese sweet potatoes drenched in butter, and then dino kale salad with uh, a glass of white wine and some chocolate, and it's just like, I try to make every meal like that, and that's, like, I do it now because that's who I am, mm-hmm. but at the beginning, yeah. I mean, that wasn't the case at all, you you kind of have to make that promise to yourself. Well, and rem- imagine the reverse, right? Where you force yourself to go to the gym for, you know, a, a week or two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is, like right after New Year's or something usually. Yeah. And <laughs> get in, you get into the gym and then you're, you're like grinding every day, like forcing yourself to try to do this. And you're doing this ridiculous, like really intense fat loss routine or P90X or whatever it is. 
And somewhere in the back of your head or subconsciously, it's like, this isn't even who I am. Like I'm trying to become something that, you know, this isn't even like natural for me. And so there's this disconnect between this goal you're trying to achieve and the type of person that you believe you are. Mm -hmm. And you can become someone new. Like you can prove to yourself that you have a new identity, but I think you have to do it with these really small wins and focus on building the habit of becoming that type of person first and then focus on the performance. Yeah. So you just made a a small change yourself. You went from not fasting to doing over a full year of fasting and reading your blog. Those are two great blog posts about fasting. Some of the best I've seen actually, especially for people who are just trying to get into it at the beginning. Um, You encountered a lot of surprises along the way. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Martin Burkhan and Lean Gains, but that's, yeah. So that's the first place that I saw intermittent fasting. And then I started reading up on it more. I read a couple, apparently a bunch, I didn't know this, but a bunch of physicians use intermittent fasting as, or calorie restriction as they call it, um, for like cancer patients. It's been proven to, you know, reduce the risk of cancer or improve the uh, effectiveness of treatment and everything. Mm -hmm. It seems like those styles are much different. So the intermittent fasting style I followed was the eight-hour window of eating. So for me, it was usually from like noon to 8 p.m. or 1 to 9 p.m., somewhere around there. And then I would fast for the next 16 hours. Um, The physicians and and the other alternative ways of doing it were either longer fasts of like, say, 24 hours. So you would eat – say you would eat like breakfast and lunch on Tuesday – and then you wouldn't eat again until lunch on Wednesday, right? Yep. So that's like a 24-hour thing. Or um, they would even the more intense medical studies would do like an alternate day cycle where they would do that 24-hour span, but they do it like three times a week or something. Yeah, that's intense. Um, yeah, it is. And also, I think it's less conducive to lifestyle. So yeah. a lot of times, when I talk about building habits or when I write about uh, behavior change, a lot of times I'll talk about choosing lifestyle over life changing, right? Mm-hmm. So like. You know, running a marathon might be life changing for someone, but running a mile three days a week would be a lifestyle choice. Yeah. And so I try to focus on choosing like a small lifestyle choice first, mm-hmm. and then you can, you know, build up to trying to do some amazing life changing feat. Um, so the eight hour window with 16 hours off was much more conducive to, a, you know, a scheduled lifestyle each day. It was like I wake up, I go to work and then, at you know, at noon or one, I eat my first meal. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of surprises. Um, the first is that it's really hard to eat a lot when you only eat two meals. Yeah. Like think that you think that you're eating a big meal, but even two large meals rarely equals what three would equal. So like it, it's a very concerted effort to reach the number of calories that you want to reach. And I was I was actually trying to gain weight while I was doing this because I wanted my goal was, you know, when I, I mentioned earlier when I increase my squat over that four month span. Yeah. So I also, I bulked up a lot. I think I went from like 200 pounds to 234. Wow. I'm span, Jeez. which was a lot, a lot faster. And even looking back now, I have pictures. I felt fat because I was big, yeah. uh, bigger than I had been, but I, I really wasn't like pudgy, but, uh, I also, it wasn't like all lean mass. It was, yeah. you know, it was a lot of muscle, but I was like, all right, I wonder if I can gain a lot of weight and try to get back up to that zone without let, you know, and stay lean at the same time, yeah. which is why I started the whole intermittent fasting thing. Mm-hmm. Cause my ultimate goal is to try to be around two thirty and like 8% body fat, but that that'll probably take a couple of years for me to work up to that. And I didn't feel like doing the bulking and cutting thing. So that's when I started looking into the intermittent fasting thing. And yeah. 
and keeping the number of calories high was difficult. So I would say that was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but one wonderful thing about it is that it makes your day so simple and easy. It's it actually does. remarkably compared to dieting. It's so much easier than changing your diet because it's not a diet. It's just like an eating pattern mm-hmm. or a for your meals. And, you know, switching that was was way easier than I thought it would be. It's this mental barrier where people think like, oh, I can never skip breakfast. But once you do it, you realize it's really not that hard at all. And one of the examples I give is, have you ever gone out like on a Friday night and then slept in on Saturday or, you know, slept in on Sunday morning and then not eat, you know, not eating brunch till noon or one? Well, you just did the intermittent fasting right then. You didn't even think about it, right? Like you'll be totally fine. You know, some people do that every weekend. So (laughs) um, I did all through college. Right. <laughs> right. So it's really not that hard. It's just a mental barrier to get over. But the absolutely is actually pretty easy. Yeah. And it was so interesting. I've been doing it for coming up on probably two years now, experimenting with, you know, all these different kinds of fasting. And uh, there are a lot of surprises. One of the things that I learned was that I've always been a hungry person. You know, I've always loved food and, and felt like I needed to eat all the time. Some of that changed when I started eating a lot more fat. I didn't need to eat quite as often, um, which enables you to kind of try fasting without losing your mind when you're not relying on a steady stream of glucose all the sure, time. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I've found that on the mornings that I eat breakfast, which I don't tend to do much anymore, I, I pretty much fast every day. Um, on the mornings that I eat breakfast, I tend to be more hungry for the rest of the day. Um, and that like realizing that not eating sometimes makes you less hungry is a really interesting effect. Oh, it's so weird. It's this thing. It, there are two things that I started to notice. I read that it would happen, but not until I tried it did I really believe that they would happen. Mm-hmm. The first is that when you're in the fasted state, you do tend to be more mentally clear. Yeah. Now, I've noticed that I have a sweet spot from, say, about 12 hours into the fast until about 16. Mm-hmm. And after 16 hours of fasting, I like feel I don't feel as mentally clear, but yeah. during those like four hours, I'm really uh, I don't know I'm like really targeted. Um, and the other thing is, yeah, that when you don't eat, you don't feel like eating. It's so weird. Yeah. Um, but once you, you barely even think about fast, food, I think it's once you get past that, you know, from from about four hours in till about twelve hours, you're in that post-absorptive state. Yeah. And once you get out of that state, you no longer really feel you're like satisfied. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's strange. It, it was totally unexpected, but, um, that's definitely one side effect, I guess, of fasting is that you, you yearn for food less. And you also, I think one big benefit, honestly, even if, if you're not planning on doing intermittent fasting, I would suggest everyone do a 24 hour fast mm-hmm. just to prove to yourself one that you can do it. And two, to realize that you actually have more control over, your need to eat than you may think, right? Like you don't, you're not a victim or a, um, you're not a slave to eating every three hours. Mm-hmm. Like you actually do have control over that. So I think proving that to yourself is, is big and it, it separates the, it separates the relationship that you have with food a little bit where I think you feel a little more in control. Like mm-hmm. I, I'm like you, I love to eat, but it's nice to know that it's like my choice and I have a little bit more control and not something that I'm like a victim to having to do like all the time. Yeah. And it's so liberating when you realize that you don't need to eat all the time. And it's, it's kind of neat when you go into that fasted state just socially, like because, um, you know, my friends and family, they realize that I do all, all sorts of wacky things and they're just like, oh, he's he's fasting now. So if, if they try to get me to eat something um, that I wouldn't normally eat, 
you know, the social conventions dictate that, that you would oblige most of the time, right? But if they know that you're fasting, then it's just like, oh, he's not going to eat because he's fasting. And yeah. like all yeah. of a sudden it's not an argument anymore. It's not like offensive. It's just something that, that you do. It's a part of your lifestyle and people tend to accept it in a different way. I've noticed than as opposed to, you know, you go over to someone's places, someone's place and you're dieting um, and you just like can't eat the food. That's kind of offensive. But if you're not eating, um, there is something that's, that's socially different about that approach. That is interesting. And I would think for someone who's, if you're like trying, really trying to lose weight and you're worried about those outside pressures, that is, I think, a benefit of it for sure. And the other thing is that you don't feel like you're sacrificing or starving yourself or restricting yourself as much because when you do eat, you can eat what you want. Like it's not, you know, as opposed to constantly draining your willpower every time you eat a meal and trying to put a smaller portion on the plate, which, you know, I don't think really works at all. Um, it's just, I don't know. It's really hard. Like I, you know, you, you think that you, you would think you'd be able to scoop less onto your plate, but research shows that you're going to fill the plate up. So, um, it's, I don't know. It's so hard to, to restrict yourself and just rely on willpower motivation. It's just not the way to go for behavior change. So, you know, just skipping the meal altogether is in many ways way easier than trying to force yourself to eat less throughout the day. Yeah. I, I certainly feel that myself just with my own habits, restricting a meal that you're eating and, and kind of being hungry afterwards is, is like the worst thing I've ever experienced. Pretty yeah. Much, you know, like it's just, uh, it plays tricks on your mind. We're not really wired that way, but I, I think that we are, especially after getting used to it, we are wired to have states of underfeeding and overfeeding. Um, and, and it, it just feels very natural. One of the other things that I, that I noticed was, um, I, I'd say my biggest worry about fasting was that all my muscles would fall off as soon as I like skipped a meal and stopped eating every <laughs> three hours. But yeah. clearly, that's not what happens. And I know you experienced uh, something similar, right? Like <laughs> you you were worried, and then that absolutely didn't happen. Yeah, for sure. So um, I actually, when I started the fast, the most recent time, I was about two o five ish, and then I increased. Um, in size from 205 to about 215 to 220, somewhere in that range. And over that time, I decreased my body fat. This is over the course of like a year. Um, I decreased my body fat from 14% to 11%. So I actually, I even added more than 10 pounds of muscle. I I didn't crunch the numbers to see what it was. But like, you know, I decreased my body fat and increased my muscle mass while gaining 10 pounds of weight. So That's awesome. um, and over that same time, I increased my clean and jerk to my personal best, which is uh, like two, 253. So my only point is that by eating less and tra- I actually I end up training less, which we can talk about that, too. But um, I, I my muscle actually, you know, I increased my muscle mass and I increased my explosiveness. So you would think that you would just completely wilt away, but it doesn't work like that at all. No. Yeah, and actually, I had a really similar experience. I put on um, a good ten pounds of muscle, and I have like before and after pictures of when I wasn't fasting and when I was, or, or as I do now. And it's it's shocking. Um, your body just adapts so well um, to that sort of. Uh, it, it, I changed my training too, but that sort of eating pattern, especially um, when you train a certain way. And, and let's talk about that a little bit. Um, I know you talk about going into overfeeding and underfeeding states, you, you cycle calories or cycle energy that you're taking in and uh, try to eat more on the days that you work out 
and less, especially when it comes to carbs on the days that you don't. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And that's a really good point to make because the numbers that I just threw out, I honestly don't think they're just from fasting. I think they're mm-hmm. from the combination of fasting, carb cycling, and nutrient cycling. And yeah. that's what I'll, I'll hint on now. So I try to, and, and I, I sort of got these threads from Lean Games and from Andy Morgan at Rip IJP and a, a bunch of other little areas that, that I read, uh, Berardi's Guide on Fasting. And then, oh, that's a great uh, one. Yeah, uh, what's his name? John Kiefer, doesn't he do carb night? Um, so, right. yeah, yeah. So all those different areas, right, that I started like pulling these threads from. And so basically the way the setup works is I have my eating schedule from, you know, where I eat my first meal around noon or one and then my last meal around eight or nine and anywhere in that window I can eat. But typically I just have those two large meals and maybe, you know, something in the afternoon. Yeah. But on the days that I work out, the post workout meal so for you know whenever you can tailor this to whatever your particular schedule is whenever you work out like the meal after you work out is carb heavy and the biggest meal that you have that day so that's the you know every meal that i eat is protein heavy so mm-hmm. i always try to get a lot of protein whatever the macros tend to be for your body weight but um that meal post workout i try to have a lot of carbs and it needs to be the biggest meal that i eat that day yeah. then whatever my second meal is Um, I'm also allowed to have, you know, whatever carbs I want, typically the fat contents like moderate on those days Mm -hmm. and then, uh, and then high protein throughout. And then on the next day, so the rest day, I once again do the intermittent fasting schedule window. And then typically, you know, if I'm good about it, the biggest meal will be the first meal. But, you know, a lot of times I don't think about it. And, um, on those days, you're right. The carb is the carb, uh, count is much less. So I will try to be, if I'm being good about it, I'll be below like 30 or 40 grams of carbs for the day. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. So like real low. Right. Yeah. And, and that is a high fat, high protein day. Right. And so the combination of all these things of having the biggest meal right after I work out of having a lot of carbs on the days that I work out and of having very few on the days that I don't in addition to the fasting, when you add those three things in, um, I think that's what led to the increases in, you know, in weight, the decrease in body fat, the increase in muscle mass, all that stuff. Yeah. And we should say that, that you're full on beast mode, you're six, five. And, and what, did, what did you say you are now? Well, right now I'm about two, two seventeen, two twenty, somewhere in there. I haven't, I didn't weigh myself yesterday, but, um, yeah, somewhere right around, I think last week I was two seventeen. So I would like to be, like I said, I'd like to be Six five two thirty eight percent body fat. Like that's the that's the ultimate goal. But I think I'll probably it'll probably be like another year or two before I can get to that. Um, yeah. Whatever. It's just slow going, you know. Like it's just a grind. And I'm not too I'm not too obsessed with the numbers right now. I just mm-hmm. enjoy the fact that I'm like still making progress each week or each month. So yeah. um, as long that's as you're doing that, then yeah, it's it's good. So when it comes to fasting, is that something that you think you'll do forever, or is it just kind of a passing fad? How do how do you work it into your habits? That's a good question. I'm not totally sure. So I, I have no intention of stopping it right now, but yeah. there are other things that, you know, earlier I mentioned that everybody has a diet plan or I think the, the goal is that, you know, or the hope for everyone, especially if you're just getting started is we all want someone to hand us this sheet that says, all right, do these exercises and eat this and it'll work for you and you'll be like done. Right. So that we don't have to think about it. But the truth of the matter is what works for you and what works for me is actually different than what's going to work for someone else. Mm-hmm. And so you need to test. And the point that I'm getting around to here is that I would like to test an all plant-based diet or I would like to test going, you know, I, have you read Bulletproof Executive? Oh, yeah. I yeah, just spoke so at his conference in yeah, San Francisco. Yeah. So He's an awesome dude. Fan, right? So like <laughs> I'd like to try the Bulletproof diet, Yeah. right? 
So um, I don't know. I like to try like all those different things and see what works best for me. I actually – I have a friend named Rand who's uh, from France and he did this really cool experiment where he tracked everything he ate for two years, which is really extreme, yeah. um, and recorded – how he felt after he ate each meal. So like, wow. you know, was his energy up or down? Did he feel sick? Did he feel bloated? Did he feel gross? You know, whatever. Did he have a headache? Mm-hmm. And at the end of those two years, he had a list of foods that made him feel bad. And so his thought was my body's giving me signals and is telling me what's good for me to eat or what's bad for me to eat. Mm-hmm. And now I have this list of all these foods make me feel great and all these foods make me feel bad. So he just ignores the foods on the bad list <laughs> and knows what works well for his body. And like, how great would it be if we all did that? I mean, I know it's an extreme thing, and you know, I don't have plans of tracking everything I eat for two years, but it'd be wonderful if we had a list of what worked exactly for us, right? Yeah. And the the difference is, most of us want someone to hand us a sheet that has the answers, and mm-hmm. the the only real way you can get to it is by testing and experimenting and, and exploring and experimenting yourself. Yeah, and absolutely. So. Well, I can't say that I have plans to stop intermittent fasting right now. I do have plans to test and try other things in the future. And yeah. so, it, you know, it may not fit into all those other goals. So I could be, you know, I could try something totally different and not do it for a while. But eventually, hopefully I'll settle on something that really works for me and my body. And then I can just, you know, do that for as long as, you know, as long as I want. Yeah, totally. So I just had the the LEAP MRT test, which is IgG, IgE. Uh, food sensitivity testing, and I did get a list of, of foods that supposedly work well and don't work well for me. So that was really informative, but um, my girlfriend, Allison, just did the same thing, and basically it came back. Like, she was... There's you a guys got the of... exact opposite foods, and now you can't eat together ever <laughs> No, actually, she's not really allergic or, or reactive to anything, um, which is... That sounds good, but it's a little bit disappointing because we're looking to actually improve, you know, our inflammation and the way that we feel and stuff like that. So for me, it's pretty easy because there are a few foods that are, you know, in the red zone I shouldn't touch. Um, but for her, it's like, what do you do if you're not really <laughs> active mm. to anything? So yeah, um, I'd interesting. be interested. Do you remember any of any of his foods that made him feel like crap? Uh, he had some surprising ones, so like red onions were really? one. And huh. yeah, and he was like, "How is this on the list?" But yeah. um, it was there, and wow. I, I can't remember all of them. They told, he told me like a group of five or so, but that was the one that I remember because it was so weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I mean, I think that I think it, it comes down to experimentation, and and there are some other things that she can do to decrease inflammation, right? Like just doing a short walking session on the days after she works out, like mm-hmm. in the morning, that can usually help. Um, obviously, fish oil. You know, there there are a couple different things that maybe she can add in. But if you're already doing all those things, then it's sort of like, this is how you'll feel. Yeah. (laughs) Until something better comes on. Right. Right. So let's talk a little bit about, obviously you're very um, experienced in many things that are physiological. And when it comes to working out, what are some of the main things that most people have the wrong idea about that actually are are kind of simple or counterintuitive when it comes to working out or fat loss or, or some other subject like that? Um, I think there are a couple things. So one is that you need to do this wide range of exercises. Mm-hmm. I, I actually don't think you need to do many exercises at all. Like if I could probably just name right now, there's probably less than 10 that I think the vast majority of people could do. And if you actually did them well, you would be big and strong and in good shape. Like cool. squat, front squat, clean and jerk, snatch, deadlift, bench press, sprints. Like if you did Boom. those, yeah. And then you can add pushups and pull-ups if you want like some body weight stuff. So that's, that's nine right there. And if you just did those nine exercises and actually did them well, mm-hmm. then you would be 
in really great shape. You'd be athletic. Like everybody, even if you don't play a sport, who wouldn't want to be athletic, right? Like who wouldn't want to have good control of their body, good control right. of their motor patterns, good, you know, be explosive, be, you know, in good shape, be able to, to move and dance and run and, you know, all these other things, right? And those nine exercises will get you there. And some of the, like, clean, jerk, and snatch, those are a little extreme for a lot of people. So mm-hmm. you don't have to do those. So do the other seven, right? Yeah. Um, but teaching yourself those movements. And if you can't do a squat with a bar on your back, then just do it holding on to a door or something, right? Yeah. Like, teach yourself the movement first. And then after you get that down, then you can just, you know, then you can increase the intensity. And that yeah. actually leads to my second point, which I think people, it's so easy to convince yourself. Here's why. So... When you want to do something, you know, like lose weight or gain muscle or, you know, get in shape, it's so easy to get motivated because that's what all the marketing messages tell you, right? They show you the transformation of someone who lost 100 pounds. They show you the video of P90X. They show, you know, whatever. You see like all these different stimuli that tell you you need to get motivated and inspired and make a huge change right now. And as a result, people end up going for intensity before volume. And I think it should be the exact opposite. I think you should always train for volume first and then increase the intensity. Teach yourself the motor patterns. Teach yourself how to move. Teach yourself how to be consistent and not miss a workout. You don't have to kill yourself at first. Like, Do two months of easy workouts but never miss a workout. And Mm -hmm. then in the third month, start to increase the intensity a little bit. And that sounds so against what the instant results like mentality is, right? So against the the immediate gratification that we have as a society. And, you know, it just gets pounded into us more and more by marketing. But if you want lasting change, then I say volume before intensity. That's a really good point. And it's just a different way of thinking about it because I I would say that I agree with that. I, I know, you know, my listeners know that I talk about high intensity. That's the best bang for your buck. Um, you can exercise a lot less and get some serious results. But if, if we're talking about the mental piece of that and actually building it as a habit, I would recommend that someone do it every day. Like I used to teach um, guitar and music lessons to people. And the ones who were always the worst were the adults who thought that they could just put it in a session, you know, an intense guitar playing session on the weekends, you know, for three mm-hmm. hours or something like that. And they got nowhere. But the little kids who played five or ten minutes every once in a while, those are the ones who actually improved because they were building this habit. They were making it a piece of who they are. And it was kind of this this volume-based approach. And then when you build it as a habit, then you can focus on really doing it more intensely with heavier weights, so to speak, you know, and, and all of that. So I, I really do like that approach. So, I, I mean, I can give you two examples from my own life. So the first is that when I was in high school, I went to this little facility um, to train for, you know, for an afternoon. There were a bunch of college players there. And so I tried to keep pace with them and um, do this intense training session. And I couldn't finish the workout. And what had happened at the end, I felt like crap, right? Yeah. I felt like a failure because I couldn't finish. Mm-hmm. And so imagine the person who goes to the gym for the first time in a couple months and they, you know, they take this really hard class and then they can't do it or they feel stupid or they feel insecure or uncomfortable or they think they look like, you know, they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And at the end of the time, they feel like a failure. Do you feel like going back? No, of course you don't, right? Mm-hmm. Like who wants to feel like a failure? But if you take the opposite approach and go do a workout that, you know, your only goal is finish the workout, like just, you know, have some fun, go build the habit. Then you leave and you're like, you know what? I feel good about myself because I worked out today yeah. and I did like I achieved the goal that I was trying to achieve. So we talked earlier about those small wins, about building that momentum. Like do that for yourself, right? Like stop putting such intense goals on yourself right away. Build the habit. Make it something that's routine for you and then start to increase the intensity. And my second example is 
I mentioned earlier working towards doing 100 push-ups in a row. Mm -hmm. For the first two weeks that I did those workouts, they were easy for me. They were like they were simple, you know. And I had been training on this Olympic lifting team for six months. It wasn't like <laughs> it wasn't like I had, you know, what wasn't in the gym or anything, right? But I made sure that they were easy for me. I got done. I really wasn't even tired. But the intensity gradually increased each week. And now, I mean, now it's really a grind. It's like tough for me to grind out these sets. Mm -hmm. But the intensity will get high enough, fast enough. Yeah. Just make sure that you don't miss, right? Make sure that you have the the ability to stick with it. And the mm -hmm. other, the final benefit of that is that. If you do build the foundation, if you do uh, start with volume first and then increase the weight or the intensity or whatever, you will have the ability, your body will have the ability to handle the higher reps, to handle the higher intensity sets because you've trained it first. Mm -hmm. So I did, <laughs> I did this really stupid thing where I tried to run a marathon without any training. <laughs> I, ran, I ran the first 10 miles. I walked one. Then I ran five more. And on mile 17, I got started and both of my Achilles seized up yeah. and I like, couldn't, I, I like wobbled like a penguin for about a hundred yards. And then I was like, I have to stop. Yeah. And it's because I, I was stupid. I didn't train any volume beforehand, right? Like why would I expect my body to be able to handle something of that intensity without training the volume beforehand? Yeah. Had I just run, had I done anything, had I done, you know, three sets of two mile runs the week before maybe my tendons and joints and ligaments would have been used to running a little bit more and mm -hmm. I could have handled the intensity better. Yeah. But, you know, just trying to go out there and do something that intense right away, that was stupid. So <laughs> I, uh, yeah, anyway, that was live and learn, but don't, don't try to run a marathon without training. for it. <laughs> I do like that advice though. And I'm even for experienced marathoners, 16 miles, 17, that's the roughest spot for sure. I remember during one of mine, my, uh, my hamstring completely, froze up and there, it seemed like there was nothing I could do about it, but eventually it let up. But yeah, that's, that's always the toughest piece. Now, all that being said, um, you've also experienced better results training less. So what happened there? So when you do intermittent fasting and especially on the days that you're not working out on the rest days, typically you're going to be at a calorie deficit or, you know, I, you know, I try to be calorie surplus on the days I'm working out. That's when I have my really big meals. And then a lot of times I'll be at a calorie deficit on the rest days. Well, if you have a calorie deficit, that means you don't have a whole lot of energy to spend. Yeah. And as a result, recovery is a little bit tougher. And so if I were to keep up this really intense workout schedule while eating less and like giving my body less resources to recover, then it would actually be counterproductive because I would be wearing myself down over the long term. Like, yeah. I might feel all right over a week, but over a month or two months, I, it would start to really weigh on me. And mm -hmm. so as a result, I decided that I would, this was another one of those times where I started my, um, you know, do one workout or one exercise per workout or have one goal per workout. And so I started doing that and I went from feeling tired and overworked to making gains. Wow. And so I was like, all right, I need to give my body the ability to recover and rest. I'm just now starting to realize that if you are the type of person who works out consistently, that next frontier is recovery. Yeah. Like if you're, if you're the type of person who's already getting in the gym, figuring out how to get your body to recover best is what may be holding you back from making that next big jump in gains. Yeah. And so, you know, I have this new eating pattern, this new eating schedule. So I need to figure out a way to allow my body to recover properly. Mm -hmm. And, and decreasing the volume that I was doing during workouts was one way to keep the intensity high on say squat, 
but not by not doing anything else, I had enough left in the tank that I could recover properly. And then, you know, two days later when I'm back in the gym, I still feel fresh. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. We're, we're coming up on time, but before we go, um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about environment design. Cause that's something that, that I definitely work into my habits and not a lot of people have awareness about why it's important. Yeah, it's so true. The, I think, so uh, I'll give you a brief story and then I'll give you an example of how I used it. And, uh, and then we can, can go from there. So cool. the, the story is about organ donors. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dan Ariely, but he's a yeah. behavioral economic, uh, economist at Duke. And so he's done, he did this research study where he looked at the rates of organ donors in different countries. And so there was one set of countries that had a really high rate of organ donors, like 98%, 95%, like everybody basically volunteered to donate their organs. Then there's another set of countries that were all really low, like 5%, 10%, you know, nobody wanted to do it. Yeah. And he looked at these different countries and like Denmark was in one category and then, you know, like Sweden was in another and he's like, these countries are very similar to each other. Like, why would there be such a huge discrepancy between this? Like, do the people in one country just not care about other people? <laughs> and what he found was that one set of countries, the countries that had really high rates of organ donors said, or sorry, the countries that had really low rates of organ donors said they sent out a form, the government sent out a form. They said, if you want to be an organ donor, check this box. And then the other countries that had really high rates of organ donors said, if you don't want to be an organ donor, check this box. Wow. Right? So it was like the difference between opt-in and opt-out. Now, the lesson here is that if you ask someone if they're an organ donor, that's something that they feel like, oh, that's this is a decision I made. This is something that's important to me or something that I chose not to do for a particular reason. Mm -hmm. But this is some this was a choice that I made. But the truth of the matter is whether or not you chose to be an organ donor is mostly determined by the type of form that you were sent. And <laughs> so wild. Yeah, and so the the lesson here is that what you are exposed to in your environment, the forms that you read, the things that are on your kitchen counter or your office desk, the signs that you see as you go throughout your day, these are all trigger points that actually determine the actions that you take. And mm -hmm. most of the time we don't think about it that way. We yeah. think you know, we just think that our environment is a place that we live and we may realize that the people that surround us affect us, but we don't realize that the items that are surrounding us are affecting our actions just as much. And so I had a habit. So this is the example of how I use this. So I had a habit that I wanted to start, which was flossing. I've always brushed my teeth twice a day. It's just how I was raised. I don't know. It's ingrained now. It's a habit. Yeah. But I never stuck to flossing all the time. It's just hard for me. I, I couldn't remember to take the floss out of the drawer. And if I did, I hated like unwinding the long spool <laughs> and wrapping it around my fingers and, you know, all this stuff, whatever. Yeah. It's just really, you know, it was, it was hard for me to remember to do it. And so I started making a couple small switches. I looked at what I didn't like about it. And I was like, okay, I don't like, you know, I can't remember to bring it out. I don't like unrolling the long spool of floss and wrapping around my fingers and everything. So I bought those little pre-made flossers. That was the first step. Mm -hmm. Then. I bought a little bowl and put it next to my toothbrush so that I wouldn't have to remember to take them out. And then the last thing I did was I took the lid off the bowl so that I would always see them when I uh, reach for my toothbrush. Hmm. And as a result, just the ability of seeing – just the, the fact that I would see the flossers every time I brush my teeth, I never forget now. And it's not, it's not something I have to think about. I don't set a reminder on my phone. I don't put up a post-it note. And imagine if your life, if the environment you were in was designed this way so that mm -hmm. the behaviors that you wanted to take were, you know, designed into the environment that you lived in and you didn't have to think about them. You didn't have to 
I don't know, plan, put an iPhone app on there to tell you what to yeah. eat during lunch, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was just your kitchen was tailored in a way that it promoted the good behaviors and removed the bad ones. Yeah. And, um, another example of this, I wrote a research article or I wrote an article uh, citing some new research that was done about how not just the size but also the color of your plate affects how much food you eat. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So if the color of your plate matches the color of your food, for example, white pasta on a white plate, you'll scoop out more because it, your mind, it doesn't look as large mm-hmm. as you, right? The portion. So I started thinking about this more and I was like, well, what would be the optimal color of plate? Well, it would be green because it would be high contrast to a lot of the foods that you would want to eat less of, for example, mm-hmm. pasta. And it would be low contrast for salads, like leafy greens, veggies. And so you would automatically, without even thinking about it, overserve yourself those foods. And so that's another way that you could, you know, this is just, imagine if your kitchen was full of these small design tweaks that promoted good, healthy behavior and removed some of the bad behaviors. And those small designs, no matter where they are in your life, whether it's work productivity or health or fitness or, you know, relationships, all those things. There are little tweaks that you can make where your environment makes doing the good things in your life easier and the bad things in your life harder. Yeah. And the latter is another really important point because your environment can definitely work against you. Like you walk into so many uh, living rooms or family rooms or dens or whatever and the center of attention in the middle of the room that every couch points at is a TV. So like people, <laughs> they're just like, I want to watch less TV. But every time they go into that room, they sit down, they're pointed at a blank screen and with, and with the pretty first much nothing else to do. A TV. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. Yeah. And so well, it, it can work against you too. Absolutely. I, I mean, I have one that worked against me. My girlfriend likes to bake cookies. And so <laughs> if I walked into my kitchen and saw a plate of cookies on my counter, then I would eat them even though I don't crave them, right? Yeah. Like just by seeing them, I would eat them. But then I f- figured out that if I put them in like a Tupperware and put them in the pantry... I, I, I never see them. So I never eat them. It's just not like, it's, it's not that I crave them or anything. It was just this visual stimulus. It's like yeah. seeing flossers on the counter, right? Yeah. I always floss when I see them. Well, I see the cookies. I always eat them when I'm there. So you can construct your environment to remove the bad behaviors just as well as promoting the good ones. Yeah, totally. Well, we're just about out of time, but James, why don't you tell folks what you're working on now and what's coming up and where they can find you? For sure. So uh, I write on jamesclear.com every Monday and Thursday. It's all about health and fitness and wellness and behavior change, all the stuff that we talked about here. And actually, especially for your listeners, I put together a download page with the intermittent fasting resources we mentioned, the psychological studies on the weight or uh, the plate color and eating, and also identity-based habits and habit formation. So you guys can download all those guides and articles and everything for free. Uh, It's just at jamesclear.com slash fbm. Um, so fat burning man. So jamesclear.com slash FBM and they can get all those goods. That's awesome. Thanks so much for putting that together, James. And this was a blast. I I think we can, (laughs) we could have filled up the whole day when talking about this stuff and geeking out, but you're welcome anytime. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure and uh, happy to do it right on. Thanks a lot, James. If you'd like to hear more from James, head on over to jamesclear.com. And once again, if you'd like to keep this show advertising free, you can check out the show notes as well as the right sidebar on fatburningman.com to donate as little as $1 and I'll send you a couple of free eBooks for your support. Some great guests coming up for you folks, Gary Tobbs, Melissa Julewan, and Mira and Jason Calton, just to name a few. I hope you have a kick butt week, be well, and I'll be talking to you guys soon. Cheers. Cheers.